robots, this is Hannah and Rachel, and this is Remedial Studies, and we have an extra special episode for you. It's our best of 2018 show where we're each going to pick five things that we haven't talked about on the show yet that we really, really love this year. They didn't have to come out this year, we just had to experience them this year. So anyway, Rachel... Rachel. Yes. That's light me. Light of my life. What what was your first pick? Okay. Uh my first pick is a TV show that um in true Netflix fashion I binged and I've been thinking about it ever since. It is The Haunting of Hill House. It was created by Mike Flanagan, I believe, and it ran uh though it's only one season so far, um and it ran for 10 episodes. It's based on the novel by Shirley Jackson, which remains to this day one of the most legitimately terrifying books I've ever read. And it was different from the book, I thought, in a good way, because the book really utilized its medium to its most terrific effect. And sort of like how, at least in my mind, Stephen King kind of does in a lot of his earlier work. Like if you've read Salem's Lot, you'll know what I mean. Um, if you don't, I can't think of another analogy right now. Sorry, guys. But the show follows this family who are from Hill House. It does a really, really good job of setting his character, which is one of my favorite tropes, as we recently learned this year. The one thing I do want to talk about, I'm not going to give any real spoilers, but a lot of people had beef with the last episode. I am shockingly not one of those people, because if you watch the show, it talks a lot about what ghosts are as in like the metaphysical concept but also like how you can feel like a ghost in your own life and you feel like you're haunting another person or like a place is haunting you oh that's heavy it's real heavy (laughs) there's one incident in particular where a girl one of the family members finds out that this ghost that she's been terrified of her whole life is her Oh, and it's it, it it does it talks a lot about mental illness and how that interacts with a lot of that stuff never in a way that's like demonizing at least in my opinion but the end episode i think people expected it to be more of a bloodbath than it was and mm. i think that's more of a product of not maybe not understanding the genre because shirley jackson writes more in the terror gothic horror kind of vein and Stuff like that is not necessarily required for that yeah. particular kind of horror. And I wonder if that's where the disconnect came from. Yeah, that genre really doesn't require violence to be frightening. Mm, true. I feel like sometimes violence is an easy way to generate feelings of horror and terror. So I appreciate when people don't cave to that and take maybe the more difficult existential route yeah that's definitely what i felt happened and i i greatly preferred them taking that path i do to shout out one particular episode just because it's technically one of the best episodes of television i've ever seen it's episode six which takes place over the whole episode is like four long shots. What? And it's really disconcerting. <laughs> it's cr- no, Hannah, it's fucking crazy. It goes back and forth in time. 
So it's like these 16 minute to 20 minute long shots going in and out of this funeral home, going through this house in like the 70s. And like, I didn't notice this the first time I watched it, but shit moves from when it pans to one person, pans to the other person, does all the stuff. Like, it's crazy how they pulled it off, and the acting is great. The kid actors in this show, spectacular. It made me cry. Aww. Real tears. My dog was really concerned for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's really good. It is really heavy. Like, I found myself, I binged it pretty quickly, but I could only watch, like two episodes at a time because mm. it was it was really heavy and as i've talked on the show i have experience with mental illness stuff so that probably also added to the heaviness factor but that was my first pick what was yours i'm also uh lined up to do a tv show first but it's completely different <laughs> just picture the monty python and now and now for something completely different perfect so this show is called Agretsuko. It's a cartoon. So it's billed as an anime musical comedy. And it stars anthropomorphized cute animals. And the main character is Retsuko. She's a 25-year-old red panda who works in an accounting department in an office. Basically, she hates her life. She hates her job. And to deal with those feelings, she secretly sings heavy metal karaoke uh, in the bathroom at work and also after work at a karaoke lounge. And the show kind of follows her around trying to navigate life as a 25-year-old office worker and your friendships and your relationships and dating. And there's some just really fun characters. Her boss is an actual pig. Uh, named Director Tan. Her best friend at work is a Finnick fox named Finnico. That's am- this whole show sounds amazing. <laughs> it's really cute and hilarious. And then there's a spotted hyena co-worker named Haida. And the two, like, boss women in the show are Miss Washimi, who's a secretary bird who is a secretary to the company's president. Uh, But she's actually, you know how secretaries actually, like, run companies and departments? Like, it's one of those situations. So she is really probably the one running the company. And then there's also uh, Director Gori, who's a gorilla lady, who uh, is the marketing director. I really love this cartoon. I feel like its central questions are, how do you deal with the existential crisis that accompanies meaningless office work? That's real. The death metal thing is so funny because it says death metal karaoke, but it's actually like short little improvised death metal songs about like, my boss is a jerk, or like, I can't believe this is happening to me. Like, why... Did my coworker gossip about my bowel movements and and things like that? <laughs> Can I say something that actually happened at the office I worked at when I was twenty five? No, it's real. It's, it's so, so real. real. So I think if you've ever had an office job, especially as a millennial woman, you will totally and utterly relate to this show, and it's just a perfect expression of the secret inner rage of millennial women office workers everywhere. And, like, there's a suck-up, 
there's the office gossip, there's that person who just doesn't do anything, and you're not sure how they still have a job. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's one in every office. Yep, there is. And there's just that one person who loves other people's suffering and just, like, really enjoys that. So, I don't know. It's it's really cute. It's really funny. It's directed and written by someone called Rarecho. I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. And it actually started as an animated short on TBS, which I think is a fun fact because I didn't know that when I started doing research on, like... I would never have guessed that. ...what these were. But the original series uh, launched on Netflix in April 2018, and they ordered a second season, which I think will be out in 2019. So I'm really excited for that. That uh, sounds like something I'm going to need to watch uh, immediately after recording this. Like, TBH. Yes. That sounds relatable as shit. Highly recommend. It won't take you very long because the episodes are, like, 30-minute style, not, like, the 45-minute style. Mm. And so you will get through it super fast because I think there's 10 episodes, so you can, like, binge it in, like, two nights. Oh, yeah. Maybe even one night. If you're really committed, I think that I, th- I think you could do it in one sitting. But maybe don't. That's probably not healthy, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not good for you. Well, do you want to tell me about what I'm sure is your very excellent next choice? Yes. My my second choice um, is an audio drama. It's one of the OG audio dramas from what I remember. As we all know, the OGest audio drama is Welcome to Night Vale. Um, but this, uh, <laughs> my second pick, is Gabrielle Urbina's Wolf, 3, Wolf 359, which debuted, I believe, in 2015, and it wrapped up last year. So it's been over, I think, almost exactly a year. I still haven't finished it because now I'm pacing myself because I know there's only so much. <laughs> but one of the things that I, I keep coming back to the show, like I've re-listened to the first two seasons of it probably three or four times because, first of all, the voice acting is tight. Like it's crazy good. And it is really well written to the point where I, I think sometimes – People underestimate how difficult it is to write for an audio-only medium because you don't have so many of your tools that you would yeah. use in a visual medium like a film. Where I actually watched a video about this the other day about how you can show so much about a character in the first 10 seconds of them being on screen mm-hmm. without ever having to have them speak. You do not have that in an audio drama. So your writing for a character has to be even more tight. It's just one of those shows where it seems like they just caught that lightning in a bottle. The concept of it, why it's called Wolf 359, is it's about the crew of the Hephaestus station that is orbiting a red dwarf star named Wolf th- Wolf 359 on a deep space survey mission. And it's, it does this bait and switch thing where you think it's going to be a zany office style drama comedy about these four people there's a science officer a communications officer who's like our lead-in he's the straight guy to all these people (laughs) the commanding officer and the ai unit who runs the station it makes you think in the first probably 10 episodes oh this we know what this is is what it's going to be and then it does a swift a swift change into being like it kind of hops around on genres a lot like especially because i think science fiction 
lends itself really well to having a secondary genre. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like you can have a science fiction comedy or a science fiction drama or thriller or what have you. Absolutely. Science fiction is more of like, it can be a genre, but it's also like a mechanic, I Mm -hmm. feel like almost. Mm -hmm. It can work in either way. It's just a matter of emphasis and convention choices. Yeah, I agree. And and I think it uh, this show in particular does it really, really well. And it does a good job of that thing. I think I think you see it more more often in TV shows, even though a lot of TV shows don't do this when they should. Surprisingly, a good example of this is the fifth season of Supernatural, where they switched the mythology. And it became <laughs> kind of a more it became a slightly different show, but you could like get back into it. It kind of does that in that it changes the scope of the story with a lot of the season changes because the picture just keeps getting bigger and bigger as these characters figure out, okay, why are we actually here? What are we actually supposed to be doing? They figure out that these transmissions that started from episode one are actually like they've been thinking they're from Earth. And then they realize, oh, uh, maybe we should have thought about how radio waves travel the same speed as light. (laughs) And maybe, (laughs) to be fair, math is not communication officer Doug Eiffel's forte. It's not. It it just does a very good job of starting out very light and very funny and transitioning into that emotional depth without losing that comedy all the time. It does it very, very deftly. But it, it does have some, of, it has some of my favorite female characters I've heard in audio dramas that are so good. Because one of the main characters that you're not quite sure if she's an antagonist for a while is the former captain of the Hephaestus who tried to get away before their mission. They don't know this person exists. They, they don't know there was another mission. And when she comes back and gives you this whole new context <laughs> for all this stuff that's happening... It's a lot of stuff like that. It, you're constantly, every 15 or so episodes, being given a new context to see things in. And that's hard enough to pull off in any medium, but to do it very, very deftly in an audio-only medium, I thought was very impressive. The sound design is excellent. I don't think that's something we talk about enough when we talk about audio dramas. Mm-hmm. I think sound design really is crucial when you think about concept of immersion yeah and it is some of the best sound design i've heard in a long time so it is very good it uh will make you feel things you will get attached to people i imprint like a baby bird (laughs) on everything we know this but trust me i mean it this time (laughs) and that was my second pick oh that sounds really good you make it sound like i should listen to it please do it's very good there are um, a good number of episodes. I think they tapped out at 61, and they get a little bit longer the more they progress. I think that's a typical thing for audio dramas, where if you're once you get an audience and some more wiggle room for production, yeah, I think you, you tend to be able to produce longer episodes. So I think that's normal. But the person who wrote um, and created it was uh, Gabrielle Urbina, who I think is coming out with a new audio drama relatively soon. I'm very excited about it. Fancy. Mm-hmm. What was your second pick? My second pick 
I was not as varied as Rachel in my medium choices this year. I really read a lot of books, so I, that's my list really uh, shows that, but we'll get into that in a little bit. But my second choice is a novel by Rachel Kong called Goodbye Vitamin. The main character, it, her name is Ruth, and the opening gambit for this book, this is not going to spoil anything, this happens right off the bat, Ruth mm-hmm. thinks she's moving into a new apartment with her fiancé, but it turns out the apartment's just for her, and her fiancé is leaving her. <gasps> so, Yes. <laughs> That's how he breaks up with her. She's like, oh, aren't you staying? He's like, no, we're not together anymore, basically. And, like, that's how the book opens. And this leads to Ruth going back home. She moves back in with her parents. And she does this not not necessarily because she doesn't enjoy her job and her fiancé just broke up with her. But her dad has received an Alzheimer's uh, diagnosis. And she moves back home to help her mom care for her father. I don't want to talk too much about the plot because there's not, it's not really super plotty. If you like a plot-driven novel, this isn't going to be your thing. Uh, It's just not. But it's structured sort of like journal entries, but also sort of not. Like everything is sort of very loosely connected and we float freely from the present uh, narrative thread into the past. And and off onto tangents. I think one of the things the book is about is memory. So I feel like the structure, this ebb and flow, and the journal-esque entries are sort of reflective of that. And Ruth has to deal with how she perceived her father as a child, and how she has to perceive her father now as an adult, now that he has Alzheimer's, and is kind of becoming a different person because of the progression of the disease, and also because, like, when you're an adult, you find out things about your parents, right, that mm-hmm. you you didn't know as a kid. And the family relationships are kind of complicated, and I think that's why this hit me so hard, because when I hit 21, my family relationships became extremely complicated and hard to navigate. And this sort of happens in this book where your relationship with your sibling becomes more complicated because of your relationships with your parents. Because I think what happens as siblings, like, your parents treat you differently. There's, I think, this desire to take sides when there's a conflict in a family, and I think this book shows that it's more complicated than that. So I think the book is kind of about accepting those complicated relationships and also about about forgiveness. So it was sort of a heavy book for me to read, but also very healing in a way. I really liked it, and I even had to tweet about it. And it was one of the books I read really early in the year, so I almost forgot that I had read it. But what do you got for pick number three? Oh, number three. Number three is actually my only book, which is which is odd. I think I only had one book last year, though. But it is The Bloody Chamber and Other Stories by Angela Carter, which was first published in the 1970s um, and is most famous for the title story, which takes up, I think, half or more of, or it's at least twice as long as pretty much every other story in 
the book, and it's based very heavily on Bluebeard mythology. And Angela Carter's work is fascinating to me because she really hones in on the idea of monstrosity in fairy tales and how that uniquely affects womanhood and how those two often interact in male-written stories. Because a lot of them are fairy tale retellings or reinterpretations. There's um, at least two Beauty and the Beast stories, one of which involves this. It's, it's not typical because none of Angela Carter's stories are, I would not categorize them as typical. But one of them has the more traditional ending, shall we say, where like, they're happy in the end and he's not really a lion and it's fine. But the second story where the girl ends up being lost to this beast in a game of cards that her father plays with him because every fairy tale dad is awful. But she ends up turning into a tiger at the end, like embracing her own beasthood in a sense to be in her own true nature with her husband. But one of my favorite stories is actually about vampires. I like vampires a lot, guys. I don't know if we've ever talked about this. <laughs> it's I don't remember the specific name of the story, and I apologize for that. It's the one with the vampire girl before World War I. There's only one of them. It talks about the whole idea of leeching off other people and how the taking of blood can be a metaphor for other things in like the traditional sexual sense that we get starting from like Dracula and Camilla and stuff like that. Carmilla, excuse me. It also talks about like the the idea of emotional leeching and the ideas of purity because it the main character is um, a young man who is a person who is biking through Romania because that's a thing you did in the never do that that's a thing you do apparently in the 1910s on the eve of world war isn't that how hotel transylvania works too i think so oh my gosh when will they learn i don't know but he's like biking through the fucking carpathian mountains and of course he sees this castle which is pretty normal for romania and he's just like hey can i stay here and she's like yes hello but she has these like tarot cards that she reads and they're always the same for all of her victims. She gets the same reading. And for this one, he's different. And she's like, oh, I am doomed to fall in love and it will be terrible. <laughs> she is this product of an intensely inbred family <laughs> who have been trying to keep their blood pure and all this other stuff and then here comes this boy who it's it's assumed he's a virgin like pure in that sense so like that's why his reaction to her is different but it's like all of carter's writing is weird and i really like that because i don't Mm -hmm. for a genre that asks you to suspend disbelief as much as fairy tales do we don't get enough weird like straight up weird (laughs) Like, I'm here. I'm ready to suspend my disbelief. I know. She has a couple of really good stories about old-style werewolves, like people who made packs with the devil and could, like, choose to turn into animals. But you would, like, mm. throw clothes at them because then they would remember they were human. Fairy tale logic. 
Love it. But a lot of what she talks about is exploring womanhood in myth through these fairy tales that she sort of transplants to these vaguely modernish settings that could kind of take place anyway. Like you can't, it's kind of a series of unfortunate events like that. Like you can't really pin down specifically when it takes place because there's almost too many markers. Like obviously the vampire story, he's specifically going to the trenches in France. Like we know when this takes place. But for most of them, it's not made very clear. The whole role of women in more traditional storytelling, like I started, I need to restart it because it's been way too long. I'm so sorry, Emily Watson. Emily Wilson, excuse me. It's been so long, I can't even remember your name. That's how awful it is. But I started (laughs) reading her translation of the Odyssey this year, which is very good. It just got away from me. But like thinking about traditionally feminine spaces and how they've been filled by male authors and translators was something I got into this year. And that book really kind of sealed that. Yeah, I haven't read any of her stuff yet, and I feel very behind. And, like, I should have done that by now. It's a short (laughs) book. It's a short book. It's very engrossing, I find. What is your third pick, my dear? Third pick, I'm going to hit you with some nonfiction essays. (laughs) Yeah. The book is called Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants, and it's by Robin Wall Kemmerer. And this book is kind of just what it sounds like. Kemmerer is a botanist and a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. Uh, this book came out in 2013, and I really liked it because it's about kind of changing our society and really paying attention to and giving credence to the things that we could learn from uh, Native people because we have treated them very badly in the past and kind of devalued a lot of the things in their culture and that they could have shared with us had we given them that opportunity. And I always find it interesting to see what people want to marry science to in terms of like blending different worldviews because I think a lot of science is like science is a tool right like it's doing experiments and making observations and looking for changes like science is inquiry is a tool Mm -hmm. so I think people confuse science as a tool with science as like a worldview where it's like I'm a super factual and emotionally cold hyper rational individual and I only believe in the facts that I can see with my own eyeballs and there's no room for anything else and I think that's just sort of a starved worldview yeah that is fine I guess but like there's so many things in this world and there's a lot of things that science as a tool is not appropriate for so I really was interested in getting her perspective and it's a perspective that I'm not familiar with as you know she's someone who is Native American and is a scientist and teaches 
and just how a lot of the things over time, like, could enrich science as a philosophy and the way we look at the world and that we should, as scientists, be allowed to have feelings about what we study and be able to acknowledge the beauty in what we study and that it shouldn't just be cold, hard facts all the time. And she just makes some really beautiful points about the differences between Native American and European cultures, about how, like, the Native American economies she's familiar with are gift economies. Mm-hmm. So you don't buy things, you, you give each other what you need, and how European economies are obviously not like that. Yeah, no. And obviously, like, those economic models have an impact on how you view the environment. And another thing she talks about a lot is, like, treating other organisms that aren't human as people, which is sort of, I think, a foreign concept and also something you're not supposed to anthropomorphize things in science, right? You're not supposed to make animals be like people because they're not human people. But when you treat animals and natural resources like a person, you have to treat them with respect. Whereas if they're just a resource with a cash value, you don't have to respect them. So, I don't know, it was really interesting, it was really eye-opening to me about the ways that we could change our relationship with the environment from, like, Anytime you think about humans and the environment, like, it's very negative, right? Like, we've hurt the earth, we're polluting it, we don't care about global warming, and it's very, like, antagonistic, but we could be having, like, collaborative and productive and positive relationships with the earth. And and how do we get our minds into that position where we can have a more positive outlook about our own place on the planet. So anyway, it was really, it was really enlightening, I felt like, and it's so beautifully written for nonfiction essays, like, I was tearing up, like, over some of them, because Mm -hmm. it was so beautiful, and I just, I cry a lot, we know this (laughs) by now. (laughs) So this book kind of, I got very emotional when I was reading it. I also want to cheat and throw in what I'm going to call a companion read to this book, uh, and that is There There by Tommy Orange. This is a novel that came out this year, and it's about the quote-unquote urban Indian experience. So I thought it was really interesting that I read both of these books relatively close together. And Tommy Orange uh, in There There has a very different philosophy when it comes to the quote-unquote, like, the land capital letters than Kemmerer does. I think it's really important to, like, capture those, both those perspectives and to acknowledge that because of the things that have happened and the things that have been done to Native Americans in this country, they are not the same people that they were or would have been otherwise, and their relationship with the land could 
I guess, depending on, you know, your perspective, it could have changed. It has changed. Yeah. So those are sort of like, I think you should read those books together. And it's super interesting to see how they kind of mesh and conflict with each other. And though I will say there there comes with like every trigger warning humanly imaginable so just keep that in mind what did you pick for book number four book number four what is uh not book number four it's not a book i'm a mess i think i said book number four so you go (laughs) my fourth pick is a movie we ultimately decided not to do an episode on for reasons i will explain but it was, in my not-at-all-humble opinion, the best movie I saw this year. And that's Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> now, we talk about this a lot on the show. About how we, like, we're white women, our, our perspective is somewhat limited. And in this particular case, because of a lot of the issues of the black diaspora that get brought up in Black Panther, like, we just did not feel at all equipped to adequately... Yeah. Sort of speak that truth that they that yeah. they're saying. Because it, it's not our truth. It just didn't feel appropriate to do a full episode on. And it's much better to amplify other people's voices. But I couldn't let the year go by without mentioning it because it is so fucking good. I, I remember when I first saw it. And I'm glad we got very spoiled. Well, I just say they got very spoiled. Marvel didn't know they were going to do this. But when they released <laughs> Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther back to back, and then they gave us standards, <laughs> and then Infinity War came out. If you really liked Infinity War, that's fine. It's not, but okay. <laughs> it, it doesn't, in my mind, express the full capabilities of the MCU, but that's a thing and another hill for another day. But this movie, sort of in Ragnarok, we talk about that in our we talk about this in our episode on that movie, is it does something superhero movies typically don't delve too deep into, and that's having a really distinct political message. I think we see that a bit in the big like the big picture stuff, like Batman and Suit and Superman movies, I think do this the most, where they have more commentary. But like Black Panther specifically speaks to the possibility of an African country named Wakanda that was never colonized by Europeans. They have hidden themselves away from the world to protect themselves and to protect these immense technological advances that they have. They're the world's only natural resource for vibranium, which is what Captain America's shield is made out of. And the story of the film is the story of Prince T'Challa ascending to the throne, becoming king and taking up the mantle of the Black Panther. It has one of the most incredible performances the year, I thought, was... Oh, what's that kid's name? Oh, he was was in Creed, right? He was in Creed. I'm gonna look it up because it's gonna bother me. Michael Michael B. Jordan. Oh, yeah, I love... He was so good in Creed, too. He's so good in, like, everything. Because I've been trying to watch more with him in it, because he's amazing. But he has one of the best performances in the film. He plays the villain. Someone put this better than me, and I'm going to have to find the post or the article so I can source it. But they talk about the very delicate balance of having a villain 
where you understand the motivation, even if you don't agree with the action it causes. Because Killmonger Eric is, it is revealed that he is Wakandan himself, but he grew up in Oakland, California in the 90s, in the heat of the war on drugs and all this, all these horrible, horrible things that were going on at the time. It can definitely be argued started out as and continued to be based on race. It was racialized. And he's sort of seen the horrific things black people, especially urban black people, have to go through in this country at the hands of a myriad of institutions and systems. And he doesn't understand why Wakanda doesn't come to the defense of those people. And that, in, in a way is is understandable even if it all the movie ultimately becomes about the debate isn't really between t'challa and killmonger the debate is really how to proceed with helping people as best you can and what is the best medium to do that in because i think they both agree at some point that like something needs to change it's a matter of what kind of change are you going to bring about. And I think that's an important conversation to have, not just in this particular context, but in like the larger political scheme. It's just really well made, guys. It's really good. And I'm really happy. The last time I checked, I'm going to have to check my numbers and I'll correct myself in the tweets if I need to. But um, the fact that it globally made more money than Infinity War <laughs> just makes me very happy. There was a conversation about this when um, the adaptation of Crazy Rich Agent, Crazy Rich Asians came out this year, about there's so much pressure on films that feature people of color, that feature women, in the case of Crazy Rich Asians, that feature women of color, like that have these things that supposedly are against the mainstream, even though millions upon millions of those people exist every day. Right. But there's so much pressure on those films to perform. And the fact that one of them just totally took over the world, like, it just feels good. Feels good. There's validation there that I hope will continue. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like when I started, like, I almost cried when I saw the trailer for Captain Marvel. Mm, real talk. I, I almost <laughs> cried, too. And I was just like, we're getting a female-led superhero movie in the MCU. Like, mm -hmm. I know that we got Wonder Woman and that that was, and that it's an amazing movie. I haven't seen it yet. But, like, I feel like Marvel movies have been my home for a long time. Mm. So to see it there and for that to finally be accepted, like, wonderful. Like, we already know that Wonder Woman is, like, the only successful DC Universe movie, so. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Patty Jenkins, a real one. Please, I cannot wait for the new Wonder Woman movie. I haven't even seen the first one, and I'm like, where's my five sequels? I will watch all of them. But, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I think now that there's really no room anymore to fall back on the old excuse of like oh well those movies don't perform they obviously do <laughs> yeah like you can't you can't do that anymore yeah. you can't do that and it really meant a lot to me as an more of an observer 
to see how much Black Panther meant to people. Oh, yeah. I, one, that movie restored my faith in the MCU because I was so Mm. tired. I was so tired. They had just put out some stuff where I'm like, I'm not even interested in this anymore. And to see a film where the entire cast was black, pretty much. Yeah. Like, that was amazing. And to see what that meant to people, and, like, you're right, it was just kind of a magical February. <laughs> it was. That was only in February. Like, I when I tweeted today that I was, like, frantically remembering and writing things down, this was one of the things I remembered because it feels like it happened 10 years ago. Like, <laughs> this year, man. This year. <laughs> right. Like, there were a couple things where I'm like, that was not this year, but it was. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's uh, it, man. But yeah, that's uh, my fourth pick for the year. Okay. Are you ready for my fourth pick? I'm always ready. <laughs> <laughs> so, I finally read the fifth season by N.K. Jemison. And I know it's a little bit of a faux pas that I have not finished the entire trilogy before I'm recommending this, but it's my show, our show, so we get to do whatever we want. (laughs) So I'd like to pick the fifth season, and I feel that I can proceed with confidence because every book in the series did win a Hugo, which has never (laughs) happened before. So N.K. Jemison is killing it, and this book is about a world that's very geologically active. It's so geologically active that every time there's, like, a mini-apocalypse, which is frequently, it's called the fifth season. So, like, it happens so frequently that there is, like, a tiny ice age that they're like, it's, like, you know, autumn, but it's the ice age. It's just a thing. Yeah, it's just a thing that happens. And... This book basically explores, like, what happens to a society and a culture where that's a thing, where you are actively in conflict with your, like, your planet becomes hostile to you, like, every 100 years. What does a society look like? And it's really interesting to see that world building. And I will say, also in terms of Like, we just talked about Black Panther having a diverse cast. This book also has that, which is wonderful to see in science fiction. It's about time. Like, I'm looking at my watch right now. You can't see it. But, like, it was time for this to happen. And this book originally came out in 2015, and it just finished in 2017. So she put out, like, these 500-page books, like, one a year, which is also insane to think about. Uh, And every one of them was so high quality, they won the Hugo. Mm -hmm. So that should tell you something. That makes me feel bad about my productive output. We can't all be like that. That's just like, this is extreme edge case human being. That's true. We cannot set our standards by N.K. Jemisin. We just can't. She's too good. The other part of this book is that there are kind of these people with earthbending powers. And they're treated very badly because people are afraid of them and what they can do unless they can use them as a tool to like control the earth right because it's very seismically active so if you have earth benders essentially that's useful 
but also you don't trust them and you treat them very badly. So that's a really interesting thing that happens too in the book. I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to give anything away because it's kind of a twisty book and like structurally, technically, in the writing, what this book does is like jaw-dropping. Like I finished the book and it was just like, I, I can't even, I can't even explain. Just structurally <laughs> stunning. I feel that. I just, it's so good. The writing's so good. N.K. Jemison's so good. I have the Obelisk Gate, which is the second book, like, on deck. So I'll let you guys know how it is. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to say too much. Isn't that the fucking worst? Because I'm like that now, too. I'm like, I don't want to say too much, but you need to, you need to experience this. How do I explain all of my feelings without ruining this for you? I just can't. So just because we're so used to our blanket spoiler warning on every other episode of the show. I know. And now I'm like, how do I navigate around this? <laughs> exactly. So I guess I won't say too much more about that and we'll let you get on with your final pick oh my final pick i think i've decided this is my favorite thing that happened to me this this year i don't really know if i kind of buy into things speaking to you but if they do this spoke to me like (laughs) reached out from my tv and like grabbed me by the shirt collar and was like this is for you this is what you need to hear and um, it was Hannah Gadsby's comedy special, Nanette, which premiered this summer on Netflix. It's amazing. I cannot say that in a new way. Everybody else has already said it's amazing. Because it is, it is so different from what typical comedy specials are. Mostly because it, it's it's using the kind of... I think stand-up has its own tropes. Like, a routine has, like, there's kind of like a skeleton of what we expect over the course of a stand-up, of a stand-up special. And Nanette flouts those <laughs> with great abandon when it's not using them to inflict a certain point. Because Hannah Gadsby grew up in Tasmania, Australia, as a lesbian, as I learned through my research this morning, homosexuality was illegal there until 1997. What? Mm-hmm. Not, not frowned upon. Not discouraged. Illegal. Illegal. Until 1997. I was five. I don't want to think about that. But she talks about her experience of, like, growing up gay in a country where that was obviously very much not allowed. And how that informed a lot of her comedy. And one of the things that she talks about, the first half is kind of like traditional comedy special. The second half is, why do we think these things are funny? How do we, (laughs) how do comedians do that? Where they take these horrible things that happen. Because one of the jokes, she does that thing that comedians do in every comedy special. And it's the callback. Where you have the joke from early on in the show that's like the end joke of the show. But there's, like, an extra ba-dum-ts on the end of it. There are tears instead of a snare drum in her version. Because she talks about the idea of what makes a joke a joke. Like, how it, how she, like, breaks down kind of how it functions. 
into like, okay, you need a setup and a punchline. But if you're telling a story, you need a beginning, a middle, and an end. With a joke, you can take the piece of the story that you want to make funny and build around that. You, um, she talks a lot about controlling the tension in a room and how the punchline is what releases it. It's the comedian telling you, it's okay to laugh now. We're fine. It's okay. And when she, so when she, she withholds that release of tension, it has a very, a very big effect on the audience. But one of the things that she talks about, and she talks about things that aren't funny, that you kind of, for a long time, I think, we've, we've had to sort of laugh along with our stuff that has to deal with her experience as a woman, her experience as a gay woman, and how, like, um, women especially, you often feel like you're a member of an audience where everyone's laughing around you, and you just kind of go along with it. because it's a survival tactic and i'm like first of all hannah you didn't need to call me out like that you didn't need to i didn't need to be this self-aware it's like (laughs) hannah gadsby is quickly becoming the new male fantasies male fantasies for me oh and it's the whole thing of like why do we it ultimately becomes an exploration why do we feel we have to make things funny why is that a thing that we, as a society, do to release the tension? And it reminded me of a quote that's, that's attributed to Carrie Fisher, who had horrible struggles with addiction and mental illness in her lifetime. But she would joke about it all the time. And she would say, well, it has to be funny or it's just real. And I think that's a play here, too, because it, it talks about living in a society where these horrible horrible things that happen to you she talks about like her experience with depression and homophobia but also with sexual assault and like all this other stuff that happened of like you have to make it funny because you have to get something out of it or it just happened and no one helped you that's the real like emotional core of it was when it's one of those things i'm an emotional crier and like any emotion. <laughs> Happy, angry, sad, doesn't matter anymore. But I'm also a very empathetic crier. <laughs> so when she starts crying, <laughs> I'm gone. It's over. <laughs> it's over. I have, no idea, I have no idea how this woman performed the show 250 times on tour, and I'm just like, bow down. But it, it's a wonderful subversion of a very standard medium that i don't that i think we're becoming more critical of but for a long time male comics especially i think got a lot of free passes that they shouldn't necessarily have gotten because it's a joke and that's something that i think we all hear to some extent in our daily lives obviously i i think women have a different perspective on it because if, if you're in a marginalized group where you have to laugh at your own expense or risk something much worse happening to you, I think you you almost try to make yourself not see how insidious that is mm. because it's just a joke. I was very happy that there was somebody who was brave enough to sort of be like, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> this is kind of fucked up and maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, and also, she's really funny. 
It is legitimately like it's very funny. That sounds really good. It's it's so good. It's one of the best hours of comedy I've ever seen. It's so good. Ten out of ten. Recommend. Yeah, I'm probably gonna have to check that out. But that was that was my last thing. What is your number five? My fifth pick, I'm actually going to do a short story, which means I can tell you almost nothing about the short story. <laughs> That's true. Uh, it's called Bread and Milk and Salt. It's by Sarah Gailey. You may know her from uh, River of Teeth, which is, I think it's two novellas, but it's an alternate history about what would have happened had America, and this could have actually happened, like, there are people that were considering doing this, what if people had brought hippos into the Mississippi River as, like, a meat animal? So, she wrote those, but I'm recommending her, I haven't read them, I just, that's what she's most known for. But this short story appears in Robots vs. Fairies, which came out at the very beginning of this year, and it's edited by Dominic Parisian and Nava Wolf. And this was a really good anthology. There were just some things in it that I... Um, I just didn't relate to all the stories at the same level, so the anthology as a whole didn't make it for me, but this short story, I still think about it, like, on a regular Mm. basis, where I'm like... That's when you know you're in deep. And I explained this to one of my friends, like, on a car ride. I forget where we were going, but I was talking to her about it, and she was like... I explained the whole thing to her because I knew she wasn't going to read it, and she was like, that's really messed up, Hannah. So... (laughs) (laughs) it's like super insidious it's about like robotics and human nature and also it treats fey as like what it means to be a truly like wild thing like i can't even explain it without giving too much away i love when the fey are treated as something completely alien and wild and totally different than humans like you know a lot of the time fey are just treated as like jumped up humans you know what i mean yeah like they're just extra vain humans which is fine but also like i like the extra edge and sarah gailey like delivers in the story so because it's so short and i can't tell you that much about it i'm gonna cheat a second time (sighs) (laughs) i'll allow it rachel is such an angel And I don't know if it was the title or the themes. I think both. But there is a short story called Meat and Salt and Sparks. And it is available for free on Tor.com. And it's by Rich Larson, who I'm not familiar with his other work at all. I just stumbled across this short story while I was on Twitter one day. And it's about a biologically engineered chimpanzee that, due to the experimentation on it, has reached uh, sentience and has personhood. And so the chimpanzee becomes a detective in the police force, and she has to solve a mystery around a murder. And I'm not going to tell you 
any more details about that murder or what the mystery actually ends up being, mm-hmm. but they feel very connected to me, and I don't know, it must have been the title, like, resonated in my brain, like, crystal frequencies or whatever, but I think also thematically they have some things in common that are really interesting. They're different enough thematically that it's sort of, like, cool to see how they bounce off of each other and, like, where the overlap is and is not. So, yeah, that was, that's my sort of weird and mysterious last pick. So, (laughs) I guess that's the end of the show. I think that is the end of the show. I think 2018 happened. We can certainly say that. (laughs) We can certainly say that. A lot of shit happened. I actually, you know, it sounded on a good note because I actually got some really great news today. I'm going into the last semester of my master's degree. Gotta stay posy. Um, But this year was a lot. It was, but it was nice to have um, this little thing we do every other week as a nice little consistent thing that we did for the most part. (laughs) And the fact that we're getting to do a second annual anything bizarre kind of crazy yeah it's it's insane i'm proud of us for sticking with it i think we've had fun making this thing we will continue to have fun a shout out to ellen and matt the real mvps who have stuck with us from the beginning we are going to be taking a little break for christmas and the new year uh we will be back i believe it is on the 22nd of january So we will not leave you forever, but we decided we're going to do Deborah Harkness's A Discovery of Witches, which is the first book in the All Souls trilogy. I have been watching the first season of the TV show and enjoying it immensely. I'm glad I didn't put it in my list because I'm excited to see um, how the book is different. My mom has read all the books and loves them very much. So we're going to be doing the book, not the show. I just want that to be clear, both for you guys and for me. But I think that is the end of that. So where can they find us on our socials? So if you would like to contact us, and we encourage you to do so. We do. You can reach us on Twitter at Remedial Studies. You can reach us on Tumblr, if Tumblr still exists, uh, at RemedialStudiesPodcast.tumblr.com. You can reach us via email uh, at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. And we have an Instagram, which I believe is just remedial studies. Mm-hmm. It's the same handle as our Twitter. Yeah, just remedial studies. And I think that is all of the social medias that we have. So if you would like to make us very happy, at the end of the year, you should like or rate or review or interact with us in any way, and we'd be delighted. So we look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, I'm on break, and I get, like, any interaction we have sent as a notification to my phone. So, like, I'm literally here to listen to whatever <laughs> you have to say uh... almost any hour of the day or night. So, like, <laughs> if you ever need someone to listen to, I'm here, guys. But we've been here too long. I think it's time we stop. We will see you in 2019, robots. Bye, robots. <laughs>